How are y'all today? Good. All right, if you got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we are going to continue in verses 23 through 26. Um, the title of our lesson this morning is, is The Lord's Supper. This is a continuation of, of last week's lesson. We started last week. Uh, we'll actually be here one more week. We'll do part three uh, next week. So if you didn't get the first part of it, then you can, uh, you can get caught up on the, uh, on the podcast. Now, last week, just real quickly, we learned how the Corinthians celebrated the Lord's Supper. Uh, if you remember back then... Uh, people didn't meet in a building like this. They met where? In people's houses, in homes. And every time they would meet, they would have a meal. They'd have a potluck dinner. People that could, have, you know, that could afford to or that were well-to-do would bring in the food. Um, and then after that regular meal, which became known as a love feast, uh, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. That was their normal way of doing things. But... What that regular meal, which should have been this symbol uh, of sharing and a symbol of camaraderie and a symbol of Christianity, where those that have shared with those that didn't, instead of being something beautiful, it had devolved into a, a spectacle of selfishness. Uh, we saw last week some people were turning into gluttons and getting drunk. Uh, other people who didn't have anything, by the time they'd get there, all the food was gone. They, they didn't share. And so it, it had really turned into this, into this mess. And because the Lord's Supper was so closely tied, because they would always do the Lord's Supper right at the end of this regular meal, the Lord's Supper became debased. In other words, it lost its meaning because the same selfish heart that people were all trying to get theirs, they would bring that same heart, they would bring that same attitude into the Lord's Supper. So that's what, that's what our lesson last week was all about. Now Paul, he wants to set them straight. He wants to say, look, this, this is not what the Lord's Supper is about. He's trying to get them back, get them refocused on what the Lord's Supper is all about. So he pins the words that you and I, if you've been in the church any time at all, you've heard these words literally thousands of times. But this is the context that people are being selfish. And so he pins these words to remind them of what the Lord's Supper is all about. So let's read verses 23 to 26. Paul says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he, till he comes. Now, those words were written 2,000 years ago, two millennia ago. And over those 2,000 years, men have interpreted that scripture very differently. So what did Jesus really mean when he said those words? Paul says, I received this directly from Jesus. What, what did he, he mean by those words? That's what we're going to start to look at uh, this week and, and next. Now, today I'm going to do something a little differently. I'm going to do something that I don't normally do. And that is, in order to understand what those words mean, those few verses, those four verses, in order to understand what they mean, 
I'm first going to look at what they don't mean. Okay, now that is something I don't normally do, and there's a reason for that, because I don't think you define what you believe by contrasting it with something that's wrong. In other words, too many Christians go around and they say, well, I don't believe that, and I don't believe that, well, I don't believe that. Well, yeah, but what do you believe? Well, I don't know. In other words, all they do, all they know what they don't believe, but they don't really know what they believe, and I, I don't like that. I think you go to the Bible and you let the Bible define what you believe. And that's actually what we'll do next week. We'll let the Bible tell us itself what Jesus meant by those words. But today, I'm going to do that because I think there's a real lesson some, uh, in a mistake someone has made. And we're going to look at that mistake and we're going to see why they made that mistake. And we're going to use that as a lesson so that you and I don't make the, the same mistake. Today, we're going to look at the Catholic tradition. We're going to look at what Catholics believe about the Lord's Supper. And then we're going to look at why they believe what they believe about the Lord's Supper. And then we're going to see why that is wrong and what lesson you and I can, can learn from that. So let's look at Catholicism a little bit. In Catholicism, the Lord's Supper is known as the Mass or the Eucharist. The Eucharist is a Greek word. It means thanksgiving. It's been around for, forever and ever. And so you'll hear in the Catholic tradition, you'll hear it called the Mass, or you'll hear it called the, the Eucharist. But as you're going to see over the next few minutes, their, um, their idea or their interpretation of what Jesus meant by those words when he instituted the Lord's Supper is very, very different from what we believe. Now, I want to begin with a few scriptures, okay? And we're going to start with a few scriptures from Hebrews. Let me read these. Hebrews 7, 26 through 28 says this, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who are they talking about? He's talking about Jesus, who does not need daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did, read that with me, once for all when he offered up himself. Look at Hebrews 9, 11 through 12. But Christ came as the high priest of the good things to come, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place, read it with me, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. One more, Hebrews 9, 24 to 26. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, he then, talking about Jesus, would have had to offer himself since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now what those scriptures are talking about is in the Old Testament, the priests would come to the altar and they would offer animal sacrifices. And they would do that on a daily basis, and then the high priest once a year would do it for the sins of the people. And they would do that year after year, generation after generation, over and over and over and over again, offering sacrifices that could never take away sin. But the writer of Hebrews tells us there is one sacrifice made one time by one high priest that can take away all sin for all time. And that is the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Peter 3.18. Uh, here's another one. Again, I'm just, there's actually more than this. I just picked out four. For Christ also suffered how many times? Once for sins, just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. So if you don't get anything else out of those four verses, you need to get this. Christ died how many times? 
Once. He suffered how many times? Once. He made how many payments? One. Listen, once was enough. His death was sufficient for all sins of all people for all time. It never has to be repeated. Okay, now for you and I, if you've been around church for a long time, that's, that's obvious, right? That's just, we all, we all know that. Now, here's the interesting thing. If that wasn't enough, God himself punctuated that one sacrifice when he, in 70 A.D., the Romans came into Jerusalem about 37 years after Jesus died. The Romans came to Jerusalem, besieged uh, that city, and totally burned it to the ground. You remember Jesus stood in front of the temple one day and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, one stone, you, this great temple, there will not be one stone left upon another. Y'all remember that? And in 70 A.D., the Romans came in and completely obliterated the temple. You see, God ordained that after his son made one sacrifice, God not only destroyed the temple, he destroyed the altars. And you see, the Jews today, they should be sacrificing, shouldn't they? But they can't because there's no altar. There's no temple. The Bible says you have to sacrifice in the temple, but it's not there. And even, here's the cool thing, even if they rebuilt the temple, they have no idea who the high priest is. Because when the Romans destroyed the temple, they destroyed all the records of the high priest. You see, the high priest has to fall in the line or the genealogy of Aaron. So even if they had a temple rebuilt, they have no clue who the high priest is. So God, you see what God did? God said, this is my son, his sacrifice is enough, and I'm going to make sure of that. Bam, he wipes it all out. And there hasn't been a sacrifice in Jerusalem since that day. Because there doesn't need to be. Every, he says, look, it's my son. Once, once for all. He's taking care of this. But what we're going to see this morning is that the Catholic Church has rebuilt the priesthood. They've rebuilt the altars. They've rebuilt the sacrificial system. In fact, it, it, around Catholic churches today, they're continuing to offer sacrifices again and again and again. And you may say, well, how are they doing that? Well, you're going to see they're doing it through the practice of the Mass or the Lord's Supper. Now, before we begin, I want to give you a definition. This is a big word, but you'll need to understand this word if you understand what Catholics believe. The word is transubstantiation, okay? And you can... That's a, that's a big word. Anyway, um, let me tell you what it means. The Catholics believe that when you... The, the bread and the wine... This is, this is what they believe. They believe it, it is literally turned into the flesh and the blood. Not symbolically, not representatively, but they literally believe that it becomes some in miraculous way when the priest speaks the words of consecration, they believe that it really becomes his flesh. Everybody with me? As odd as that sounds and as weird as it sounds, that is actually what they believe. And that is the basis of their whole interpretation of the, of, of the Lord's Supper. And we'll talk about that as we, as we move through. In fact, you can find this in the Catholic Catechism, just so you know I'm not making this up. It says this, "...that wonder and singular change of the whole substance of the bread into the body and the whole substance of the wine into the blood, the appearance only of bread and wine remaining, which change the Catholic Church most aptly calls transubstantiation." So they believe the it still looks like bread and it still looks like wine, but in effect, it's actually been turned into real flesh and real blood. Everybody with me? Okay, that's our basis. Okay, let's move on. Now, to understand 
how Catholicism interprets the Lord's Supper. We're going to let them speak for themselves, okay? I'm going to let them tell us what they believe. There's a guy by the name of John O'Brien. He's a Catholic priest, and he wrote a book called The Faith of Millions. And he wrote this book in order to help Catholics better understand the importance of the Mass or the Lord's Supper, okay? Now, this book has received something called the Nihil Obstat and the Imprimatur. Now, see, let me say, he wrote a book to explain Catholic doctrine. Now, listen, there, trust me, there's a lot of Protestant books out there that, wrote, that have tried to explain what we believe, and they're terrible, okay? I don't want somebody going to a book and saying, here, this is what Derek believes, okay? I don't want that, but this is a little bit different. You see, in the Catholic Church... Uh, you, the Catholic Church can actually bestow these two things on a book. You see, the Nihil, Nihil Obstat and the Imprimatur are official Roman Catholic declarations that a book is free of error. So this guy wrote a book, he submitted it to the Catholic Church, they reviewed it, and they said, yes, this, this, this book is completely free of error. It says, everybody with me, that's important because anybody can write a book. But what we're going to read here today, the Catholic Church says, yes, that is exactly what we believe. It is free of any doctrinal or moral error. In other words, it's officially sanctioned by the Catholic Church. This is what he said in this book. And listen very closely. When the priest announces the tremendous words of consecration, this is the Mass, he reaches up into heaven and he brings Christ down from his throne and he places him upon our altar to be offered up again as the victim for the sons of man. It is a power exercised by the priests greater than that of saints and angels. It's greater than that of seraphim and cherubim. Indeed, it is a power greater even than the power of the Virgin Mary. While the Blessed Virgin was the human agency by which Christ became incarnate or flesh a single time, the priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders him present on our altar as the eternal victim for the sons of man. Not once, but a thousand times. The priest spe speaks, and lo, Christ the eternal and omnipotent God bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command. Now I want you to understand what he's saying there. He's saying when the priest offers the mass, he reaches into heaven, brings Christ down, and offers him again as a sacrifice on the altar. Everybody see that? Okay. Go on here a little bit more. Of what sublime, sublime dignity is the office of the Christian priest who is thus privileged to act as the ambassador and the vice regent of Christ on earth. He continues the essential ministry of Christ. He teaches the faithful with the authority of Christ. He pardons the penitent senator, sinner with the power of Christ. He offers up again the same sacrifice of adoration and atonement which Christ offered on Calvary for the priest is and should be another Christ. Okay? Now, let's go on. Where did those teachings come from? Because if you haven't, I hope you noticed that is exactly contradictory to the scriptures we just read. Is it not? You see, scripture says he was offered how many times? Once, it's done. They say we offer him again and again and again and again and again. Well, where do they, where do they get that from? Okay. Well, you see, they come from the tradition of the Catholic Church. You see, the Catholic Church believes that it is protected by the Holy Spirit from going into doctrinal error. So if the Pope says something or a council says something, then it's true because the church is infallible. 
that they cannot make, make an error. You see, the church, in the Catholic Catechism, it says this, the church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truth from the Holy Scripture alone. Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. You see, in the Catholic Church, you've got the Bible, and then you've got the teaching of the church, and they're equal. Everybody with me? They're the same. So if the, if the church says this, it's true, just as true as the Bible is. All right? And, and you've got to understand that. That's, that's where these things come from. Now, the teachings on the Mass go back to the, uh, to the 16th century, in the 15, 1545 to 1562, uh, a council met, a Catholic church council. And they met because this is right in the middle of the Protestant Reformation. You guys, you got guys like Martin Luther standing up and saying, that's not what the Bible says. That, that he, people are staying like, that's not, you, you can't do that. The Bible doesn't say that. In fact, you're contradicting the Bible. And the Catholic Church had a council convened. And they decided to, to lay down, okay, we're going to lay down exactly what we believe about the Mass. And the result of their meetings, which lasted 1545 to 1562, so what's that, 17 years? Over the 17-year period, they came up with a list of canons. Now, a canon is a very short, succinct statement of Catholic doctrine. So they wanted all Catholics to know this is what we believe, and so they came up with these, uh, they came up with these canons. So I'm going to read a few of them to you here this morning, and this will define for us what Catholics believe about the Lord's Supper. Here's the first one. If anyone denies that in the sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist are contained truly, really, and substantially the body and blood, together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus, but says that He is in it only as a sign or a figure or a force, let him be anathema. Okay? Now let me, let me interpret that for you. If you say that Christ is not actually and physically there, if you say that is not His body, that's not his blood. That's, that's not his soul. That's not God in the bread and the wine. If you say that's just a symbol, then the Catholic Church says you are damned. That word anathema means you're damned to hell if you say that. Okay? Let's read another one. If anyone says that in the sacred and holy sacrament of the Eucharist, the substance of the bread and wine remains conjointly with the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ... Let him be anathema. In other words, if, you're say, if you say they're both there, that you, if you say, yeah, it's, it is his body, it's his flesh, but it's also bread, they say, well, you're damned to hell if you say that. You, you cannot say that. Everybody with me? Where we're, where we're going here? If anyone says that in the Mass, a true and real sacrifice is not offered to God, or that to be offered is nothing else that Christ given us to eat, let him be anathema. In other words, if you, if you even go so far to say, yes, we are eating Christ, we are eating his flesh, but you deny that it is a real sacrifice, then it says you're damned to hell. Okay? It goes on. And inasmuch as in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, is contained and immolated in an unbloody manner, the same Christ who once offered himself in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross, the Holy Council teaches that this is truly propitiatory and has this effect, 
that if we contrite and penitent with sincere heart and upright faith with fear and reverence, draw nigh to God, we obtain mercy and find grace and seasonable aid. The victim is one and the same in the Mass, that is Christ, now offered by the ministry of priests who then offered himself on the cross. Okay, what does that mean? In other words, what they're saying is the Mass is a real sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's not symbolic, it's not a remembrance, it's not a representation, it is a real sacrifice of Jesus Christ, just like priests in the Old Testament sacrificed animals on the altar. It is the exact same sacrifice. The only difference is that the one in the Mass is an unbloody sacrifice, while the one in the Old Testament was a bloody sacrifice. But because it, now listen to this, because it's a real sacrifice, it is propitiatory, which means it pays for sin. You see, the thing you've got to understand about the Catholic Mass is you don't come and take the Lord's Supper just to remember. You come and take the Lord's Supper to have your sins forgiven. Christ is dying on the altar again to pay for your sins that you committed since the last time you took the Mass. And when you walk out of that Mass and you begin to sin again, then you've got to come to another Mass where there's another sacrifice. Does everybody see? This is the Old Testament all over again. It's the Old Testament all over again. See, they don't believe that you got on your knees one day and, and, and you accepted Jesus Christ through faith and, and, that, and it was done. They don't believe that. They believe that you have to keep coming back to Mass and Jesus has to be sacrificed again and again so that your sins will be forgiven until you come back to Mass the next time. See, it, it, don't forget, it, they are saying the Mass is truly a payment for sin. Not once for all, but again and again and again and again. It moves on. It is well understood that it is an unbloody sacrifice, but it is no less a sacrifice. It is rightly offered for the sins, the punishments, the satisfaction, and the other necessities of the faithful who are living, but also for those departed in Christ but not yet fully purified. In other words, the Mass can be offered, Jesus can be sacrificed again and again to pay for sins, not only for the people that are alive, but also for people that have already died and gone to purgatory. For those of you that don't understand Catholicism, they believe that when you die, there's life and there's heaven, but there's a middle ground called purgatory. And that if you die, and let's say, for example, you died in... Well, anyway, it's, it, we don't want to go down that road, but there's a middle ground. You go to purgatory and you serve some time in purgatory to get purified before you go to, you go to heaven. So if you've got an aunt or an uncle and they're in purgatory, you can say a mass for them and it gets them out of there earlier. Everybody, it, it's, it's, it, it goes on and on, right? Okay. Let's go on. If anyone says that by those words, do this in remembrance of me, Christ did not institute the apostles' priest or did not ordain that they and other priests should offer his own body and blood, let him be anathema. In other words, if you say, do this in remembrance of me is anything less than the institution of the Roman Catholic priesthood, you are damned. In other words, they believe that when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he was saying that that institutes the priesthood. Do this. Everybody with me? And if you say that's not what he meant, then you are, you are damned. If anyone says that the sacrifice of the Mass is, is one only of praise and thanksgiving, or that is a mere commemoration of the sacrifice consummated on the cross, but it's not a real sacrifice which God accepts so that he can forgive sin, 
If you say it's anything less than that or that it profits him only who receives and ought not to be offered for the living and the dead, for sins, punishment, satisfaction, and other necessities, let him be anathema. In other words, if you say it's only done as a commemoration or remembrance and not a real sacrifice, or if you say it's only for the living and not for the dead, then you're damned to hell. Give you a couple more. If anyone says that the sacrifice of the Mass is a blasphemy upon the most holy sacrifice of Christ consummated on the cross, let him be anathema. In other words, if you say that the Mass, as it's practiced by the Catholic Church, blasphemes the cross of Jesus Christ, then you are damned to hell. Okay, this is some pretty, pretty blatant stuff, isn't it? I mean, when you really look at what they believe. Well, a couple more. If anyone says that it is a deception to celebrate Masses in honor of the saints and in order to obtain their intercession with God, let him be anathema. In other words, see, masses are not only to held to forgive your sin, masses are not only to held, held to forgive the sins of the dead, masses can also be held to, as an offering to dead saints to get them to intercede with God on your behalf. And if you don't believe that, you're damned to hell. And just to make sure all the bases are covered, if anyone says that the canon of the mass contains errors, let him be damned just to make sure we got all our bases covered. You say any of that's wrong, then you're damned. Don't, say, don't, don't touch any of it. Now, does the Catholic Church, that was in 15, that was middle, middle uh, 16th century, 1545 to 1562. Does the Catholic Church still believe that today? Well, yes, they do. This is Vatican II in 1962. It says, The blessed sacrament should be given the worship which is due to God, the true God. It is not to be adored any less. Do you understand when they do the Mass, they will walk up to the Mass and they will genuflect, right? Why are they doing that? Because that's God. That bread is Jesus. That, listen, one, I saw one Catholic, I don't know if I have this quote in here, I don't think I do. They had one Catholic priest who said, you can always tell a true Christian because they'll, they'll genuflect or they'll bow before the bread and the wine because they know that is Jesus. That's really him. Okay? Um, here's a, the Catholic Catechism says this, The sacrifices of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of the priest who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of the offering is different. In this divine sacrifice which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once on the altar of the cross is offered again in an unbloody manner repeatedly. That's the Catholic Catechism. That's what they teach children, or that's what they teach new believers as they come into the church. One more, the Vatican II says this, As often as the sacrifice of the cross by which Christ has been sacrificed is celebrated on the altar, the work of our redemption is carried out. It is a redeeming sacrifice just as the cross is. In other words, what he's saying is it pays for sin, just like the cross did. Now, what do we believe about all of that? Okay, well, real quickly. We believe that the sacrificial work of Christ was finished on the cross. Do we not? Um, John 19, 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said what? It's done. It's over. Everything's taken care of. Romans 6, 10, Paul says, For the death that he died, he died to sin. There it is again. Once for 
all. Once for all. It doesn't have to be repeated again and again and again. We believe that Christ is our high priest and mediator. We don't need a man to serve in the office of priest. 1 Timothy 2.5, listen to this. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Jesus Christ. That's as clear as a bell. There is no such, there is no priesthood. In fact, the Bible says, who are priests? We are. We are the priests. Every single one of us are priests. That's what the Bible tells us. We, the only mediator between us and God is Jesus. That's it. There is no other. No saints, no priesthood, no nothing. That's what the Bible teaches. We, we believe assigning worship to the elements is the same as idolatry. If you, if you bow down before a piece of bread or you bow down before a, a cup of wine, Exodus 24 says you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. It's so, listen, don't think they don't take this seriously. It's my understanding, and somebody here that comes out of the Catholic tradition can may confirm this, but if you ever notice, you don't come take the bread out of the plate, do you? You come up there and you open your mouth and they put it in your mouth. You don't touch it. You don't, you don't get little bottles of, uh, you don't get little cups. They have one cup that they give you. You don't touch it. Because it's real blood, guys. It's real. It's him. Uh, the craziest thing in the world I read about five years ago at the University of Central Florida, they had a mass, and a guy comes in as an atheist. He didn't believe. I don't know what he was doing there. But when they, when they put the bread on his tongue, he walked back to his seat, and he took it out of his mouth and put it in his pocket. And somebody saw him. And they literally, now I'm not making this up, they filed a police report for kidnapping. Because he kidnapped the body of Christ. And they were dead serious. You kidnapped the body of Christ when you walked out of there with that bread. You don't touch that. See, this, they literally believe it's the body and the blood of, of Jesus Christ. We believe, folks, that once you are dead, there are no second chances. There's not a place you go to that's called purgatory where you pay for your sins and one day when you've been there a thousand years or ten thousand years you get out and go to heaven. The Bible tells us it's appointed unto man once to die and after that, the judgment. There is no middle ground. There's nothing we can do about that. In summary, we believe the doctrine of transubstantiation is wrong. We believe those teachings regarding the Lord's Supper, depart from essential Christian truth. And not only that, they, they, they directly contradict the Holy Word of God. They, they contradict Scripture. Now, here's the lesson we need to learn. They made two fatal mistakes. But it's also, it, it, what we find, as you look into other, uh, about nine, well, I'll say nine years ago, about seven years ago, I taught a, a, a series of lessons called Beliefs. And I looked at Catholic beliefs, I looked at Mormon beliefs, I looked at the beliefs of Jehovah's Witnesses, of Seventh-day Adventists, of, of all these different, different forms of, uh, of Christianity. Um, and I looked at them, and they all made, two common mistakes. They all had something in common, okay? Two what I would call fatal flaws in their systems. And this is exactly true of what we see today with Catholic beliefs regarding the Lord's Supper. Number one, and listen to me very closely. This is the biggest lesson. I, I went through all this to go to get to this point right here. 
the, the, the mistake they make is they go outside of Scripture. To figure out what something is, they go outside of Scripture. You see, they all, Book of Mormon, right? Uh, uh, the Catholicism and their tradition, they all believe in some revelation outside of God's Word, another revelation of God's Word. So what they do is they add or they subtract to Scripture, even to the point where they'll contradict what's in the Bible. Because once you go down that road, you can make up anything. You just, you, and after a while, you just justify it. Now, let me tell you something. You say, well, you're sitting there today thinking, well, thank God I'm not doing that. Thank God I'm at River of Life and we believe the Bible. Let me tell you, there are Protestant Christians all over this world and probably sitting in this church that do exactly the same thing. I've seen people and I've heard people say stuff like this. Maybe you've heard it. They're about to do something that directly contradicts Scripture. Okay? And if you ask them about it, they'll say this. I prayed about it. I got peace about it. Anybody with me? I know it ain't what the Bible says, but I've prayed about it. Let me tell you, you, you know what you just did? You stepped over into another revelation. It's your own, the revelation of your own mind, the revelation of your emotions, the revelation of your will. It doesn't matter for you now what the Bible says. You just, you just step right over and say, well, I, I, I got peace about it. I feel good about it. It's right for me. So you don't have to be a, a, a major religion to do this thing. You can do it every day. When the Bible's sitting there staring you in the face saying, don't do this or do this, and you refuse to do it and you come up with all these reasons, you're, you've just done exactly the same thing. You just stepped over into another revelation and you let that revelation supersede or override what the Bible tells you to do. And, and folks, when you do that, one day you look up and you've got this whole, you've built this whole life, this whole worldview that's nothing like what Scripture says. In fact, it'll even contradict Scripture. And that's exactly what happened to Catholics. That's exactly what's happened to the Mormons. That's exactly what's happened to the Jehovah's Witnesses. Anytime you go outside Holy Scripture, you are, you're asking for, for trouble. 1 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be, what is that word? complete. That word is perfect. In other words, all scripture is given to make you complete. Everything you need to be a complete woman of God, to be a complete man of God, is found in Holy Scripture. Nowhere else. You don't need anything else. You ain't got to add to it. You ain't got nothing. It's all found inside of scripture. The second mistake that all of these systems make, and the Catholics have made as well, is they essentially deny the doctrine of justification by faith. You see, what they do is they add works to salvation. They, they put something out there that you have to do. See, if you're a Catholic, you have to go to Mass to get your sins forgiven. You have to come back again and again and again and again. But see, my Bible doesn't say that at all, does it? Romans 3, 23 to 28, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a, what? As a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a payment by His blood to be received by faith. 
For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. See, I know that there was a day that I, I, I made him Lord of my life, and when I stood up from that day, I was a child of God. I didn't have to keep coming back again and again and again and again. He died once for all, and I received that as a gift by faith. But you see, all these other systems, that's not good enough. They'll, they'll put things in you have to do. In fact, this is the biggest. Look at any false doctrine or false religion. This is true of every single one of them. You have to do something to be made right with God. You have to go to Mass. You, you have to do the five pillars of Islam. You have, uh, the, 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 um, if you, uh, Book of Mormon says this, you are saved after all you can do. You are saved after all you can do. In other words, you've got to do something. As you leave here today, I want to leave here, here with two things. Number one, folks, Christ's death is sufficient. His death is sufficient. You don't, there's nothing that ever, if God sent His holy and perfect Son, why would He ever make Him so that you had to add something to it or, 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 or repeat it over and over again? The Bible clearly tells us that's not the case. So Christ's death is sufficient, and let me tell you something else. God's Word is enough. God's Word is enough. You do not have to go outside, and you don't need to add anything to either one of those um, as you move through life. Now, next week, we're going to come back in, one more lesson on the Lord's Supper, and we're going to look, what does the Bible teach us about what happens in the Lord's Supper? What is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? Why did God, why did Jesus say, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. When he said, this is my body, what did he mean? Did he mean that's really my body, that's really my flesh? Did he mean it's just a symbol? Did he mean something else? But next week, we'll look at this, but we won't go outside of Scripture. We'll find exactly what does the Bible teach about the Lord's Supper. Let's pray.